0: Hello, this is the second of Historically Thinking's year-long series on the skills of historical thinking. In our first installment this year, which was episode 196, we heard cognitive psychologist Daniel Willingham explain reading comprehension, without which none of the other skills really work. Today, we're going to tackle connecting. If we put connecting into the form of a question, it would be something like, how does this document, or any other source, from portraits to shoes to stone walls, fit into a bigger picture? Connecting joins together information from various sources, near and far from each other in space and time. It compares and contrasts. It corroborates testimony. It observes interesting links. Connecting introduces the idea that history is first a way of seeing before it can become a way of thinking." There's no better way to discuss connecting or any other skill of historical thinking than to consider an exemplar of that skill. If you were trying to craft a silver teapot, you wouldn't want to read a book about it, not even a stack of books. You'd want to watch a craftsman at work and be able to ask lots of questions, maybe even have a go at it yourself under their careful and experienced eye. Today's exemplar is the book The Ghost of Galileo and a Forgotten Painting from the English Civil War, just published by Oxford University Press. Its author... Our guest is John Lawrence Heilbrunn, professor of history at the University of California at Berkeley, where he is also vice chancellor emeritus. Professor Heilbrun is a native of the Bay Area and earned both his A.B. and M.A. in physics from Berkeley before continuing on at Berkeley to take a PhD degree in the history of science under the direction of Thomas S. Kuhn. He has also served as senior research fellow at the Oxford Museum for the History of Science and is an honorary fellow of Worcester College Oxford, which I will have the unpopular opinion, is the prettiest college in Oxford. His work has ranged across the history of physics and astronomy from Niels Bohr, a very short introduction, also published by Oxford, to my favorite, The Sun in the Church, Cathedrals as Solar Observatories. He now divides his time between Berkeley and West Oxfordshire where his local is the Rose and Crown in Shilton, which gets a very nice uh, mention in the acknowledgements. Professor Heilbrunn, welcome to Historically Thinking.
1: Thank you very much.
0: So I'd like to begin uh, this web of connections. You describe it at various times as a a mosaic or a tapestry uh, or a tesserae of, of connections. This is a book of connections. Um, and uh, for those of us who enjoy those connections, it's kind of intoxicating to watch your mind go from piece to piece. <laughs> hmm. Um, So let's
1: begin with your – go go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say that the topic uh, almost uh, requires uh, the sort of uh, weaving or uh, mosaic making that you mentioned. Uh, Perhaps I should say something about what the project is so that uh, we can put it into context. Uh, The painting in question is hanging in a stately home in the south of England called Kingston Lacey, Uh, it can be found if there is any uh, guard available to uh, open the upstairs corridor in which it resides, uh, hanging in the dark. Uh, It uh, presents two sitters, one a young melancholic man, boy even, adolescent, Uh, the other some sort of sympathetic adult standing, and uh, a few props. Uh, a globe, a uh, telescope, and what caught my attention, a book, an open book held open by another book, the open one uh, showing the preface, well, excuse me, showing the illuminated uh, or illustrated title page. But the uh, painter didn't bother to put in either the title or the author. Uh, There's just uh, ghostly figures outlined. And if you happen to know this book, uh, why, you could not mistake it. And if you didn't know the book, it would mean a thing to you.
0: So uh, how, how, how did you – were you just touring the house at the time? Yes, I mean how, yes. how did you, you – you went down there just to say another stately home –
1: well, I was staying in the area and uh, had nothing better to do. And this particular uh, stately home, uh, a National Trust property called, as I say, Kingston Lacey, it has one of the best art collections in the entire uh, the portfolio of uh, homes that the National Trust operates. So it's the obvious thing to do if you're in the area yeah. to go see it. But uh, I wasn't expecting anything in particular and, except and- old masters.
0: Yeah, and this is, um, Kingston Lace, this is this is the coast of Dorset. Yes, in this Dorset. Is ne- this is near the Isle of Swanage and Corfe Castle, which are also part of the story. Y-
1: yes, it's uh, not Near-ish. too far. Yes, yeah. it's in Dorset. Yeah, right. It's not quite on, on, on the water. It's a huge yeah. estate. Uh, it would yeah. still run for its agricultural.
0: So, uh, we could go on to a long excursus about frontispieces. I have bored uh, Classrooms Silly with 30 minutes mm. talking about the frontispiece of um Hobbes's Leviathan. Oh yeah, that's a uh, good one. We have uh I think episode 150, two philosophers nearly bored me to death. Well, I I, I let them uh with talking about the frontispiece <laughs> of uh, Jean Battista Vico's uh great yes. first treatise yes. which is these are amazingly complex coded as you say hieroglyphics um which say something. That's right. it, it but, may, but they they present the a piece... They present a thesis for, for the subsequent book. Yes. And you recognize this because you had spent a lot of time with it.
1: I had spent a lot of time with the book in question. Yeah. Uh, which is Galileo's dialogue on the two chief world systems in its English translation, uh, which uh, was the book that got him in trouble with the Inquisition. It's a very famous book. I should say, however, that in distinction to, let's say, the Vico uh, frontispiece, uh, there's no explanation of the uh, Galilean. Yeah. Uh, Vico has a long story about what the thing means. It's true, and, yeah. Yeah, and uh, Galileo, why he just presents it, or his mm-hmm. artist just presents it, though I'm certain that he had a major hand in uh, putting it together. Yeah.
0: So so, so let's describe, why don't you describe the Galileo frontispiece? The Galileo front.
1: Uh, Galileo frontispiece uh, has three people in it, uh, two of them to one side. These are Ptolemy and Aristotle separated by a gap. And on the other side is a figure that looks very much like Galileo, but supposed to be Copernicus, or so is labeled on his robe. There are a few things at the bottom uh, reminiscent of Galileo's experiments, uh, but those are the three items that uh, are the the, the three figures whose spacing and appearance is so uh, memorable that uh, even in an impressionistic rendering, you see what it is. That's the original one. That's for the Italian edition. Now, you as a connoisseur of fundus pieces will know (laughs) that the thing was redrawn Uh, in the lat for the latin edition and whereas the italian ones show all these guys softly modeled as if they could be friends and were having an agreeable conversation Mm -hmm. the uh, latin edition uh, uh, which uh, was done in germany uh, is what one might call a protestant frontispiece with rigid (laughs) lines and you could not suppose uh, that those people are going to be able to reach any uh uh, agreement on the question of world systems, which is the topic of the uh, dialogue.
0: Yeah, and as you and this is the the Jacob van der Heyden uh, yes. front frontispiece, in which uh, basically, and we have a, a very Hyde, van der Heyden. Someone had seen a portrait of Copernicus because it's it's a pretty yes. good rendering of of the portrait of Copernicus, of the standard right, mm-hmm. and he's. And we've got two bearded ancients who are arguing over something, and Copernicus is standing off, looking at us, saying, holding out his hand as if to say, "Look at these two fools." Um, so it's a very much more adversarial sort of of, of, of
1: depiction. Quite, a, quite, yes. And 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 the uh, the uh, figures are drawn in uh, uh, strong contrast; they're not uh, uh, fuzzy as they are in the no. uh, Italian one and copernicus has had a shave between uh, the uh, italian yeah. and the latin edition the yeah. appearing as you say in the self-portrait of his which was quite well known uh, yeah. at the time
0: <clears throat> and and he's even uh, done so the other two are in the uh, the van der heiden has very nicely done they're in much more shadow their garments copernicus mm-hmm. stands in the sun nice uh, so nicely enough and uh, the other two yes. are uh, in the dark a little bit in the dark; they're obscured. Um,
1: so yes, yes, yes. Well, well noticed. Yes.
0: So you you went up to that hallway. You saw this nice guard, perhaps let you up there as you you, you uh, suggested. And uh, yeah. well, you was, a, it
1: happened to be open the day I, I passed. Yeah.
0: You had a revelatory shock. So w- then, what?
1: Hmm. Well, uh, the ob- <laughs> the obvious question was who are the guys? Who are the sitters? Who was the painter? Who commissioned it? And why? That's the evident and obvious thing you have to know. And then the much more difficult question and the much more interesting one is, who was it for? And uh, who would have understood it? Who would have recognized this uh, hieroglyph, uh, this uh, impressionist, impressionistically rendered uh, hint or reference mm-hmm. uh, to uh, Galileo's book. So what did Galileo through- mean to these guys?
0: <laughs> let's yeah. go through that then because yeah. this is a little bit – now we're kind of going in reverse of the order that necessarily happens in the book where we start – you start with what Galileo means, really what Galileo means even for the English. Um, yes. Yes. Uh, but let's let's go start out with by identifying the sitters, the painters, and then let's talk about what Galileo means for the English. So, who were they?
1: Well, the uh, melancholy adolescent uh, is named John Banks, uh, about whom, of course, very little is known. Uh, he died young, but uh, what's important yeah. is his father, also called. John Banks, uh, Sir John Banks, who was at the time of the painting the Chief Justice of Common Pleas of England, which made him, in effect, uh, King Charles I's uh, primary lawyer mm-hmm. and legal adviser, uh, and uh, a man of immense experience. And as I have pieced together his career, I think a man of exemplary uh, tolerance and probity for the period. Mm -hmm. Uh, and widely interested, had a large library, which is fortunate for me because that allowed me to infer some of his uh, interests and so Mm -hmm. on. Uh, The other sitter uh, is a doctor called Maurice Williams, Sir Maurice Williams, who uh, had been the physician attending uh, the most forceful and powerful minister of Charles I, uh, who uh, was, uh, unfortunately for him, executed uh, on a trumped-up charge, which freed the doctor to attend young John Banks, who is obviously ill of something or, or another. I got into the—this uh, perhaps is a collateral line of work—I uh, got into the uh, records of his college and was able to find the buttery books, that is the uh, records of what he had had to eat and drink.
0: Yeah, this is because they were at Oriel College. Yes, they were at Oriel uh, College. And um, now, what did I don't know if you've said this, but could you also, what was the year the, of, the, of the the portrait the, was probably the, painted?
1: The, the portrait was probably painted in 1643 or 1644, which so means this a, a year li- or two after Galileo's death.
0: A year or two after Galileo's death. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Banks... Uh, is uh, advisor to Charles I and for um, for listeners who are unfamiliar, this 1643 Charles the I, chief legal advisor to Charles I. this, is a, this is, becomes a very interesting <laughs> it's a very interesting thing for both England and Oxford.
1: Yes. Well, the, the point that you raise is critical. Uh, 1643, well, in 1642, the end of 1642, when the Civil War broke out into a shooting war, uh, just after the first major battle, Charles retired with his court or with what he had of a court uh, to Oxford, where he stayed for the next two or three years, uh, which is then the center of his government, insofar as Parliament in London was not the center of government uh, and the headquarters for his armed armies.
0: So uh, just very quickly, because we've teased in, let me try to enumerate the connections we've made. Um, you've already made very quickly. You've, you've noticed this is Galileo. You figure out by the people, we've got a doctor who's been really hovering around the heart of court politics for of the Stuart Court we 've got then a boy who's a scion of the most important legal family in Stuart England can be argued a portrait well, that's then to go a little far but anyway it's a, a little quite but important he's, he's the chief a, lawyer a but hes yeah. a, you know he's part of that okay well, let's go with it. but he's these are two people that are at the heart of, of, of are close to the heart of Stuart of Stuart court politics it's a portrait that's painted in the midst of the great Calamity of seventeenth century English government and society, um, and we've got Galileo. I, I think I already mentioned that. And we've got this; these connections. So this is the the, the, the connections are proliferating. They're like they're they're exponentially yeah, they're, multiplying. They're
1: getting they're getting more and more. Yeah. Now, now let's put in the painter. Yeah. Uh, whose name was Francis Klein in its uh, anglicized version, but who was uh, from Rostock. Who was trained really? in Italy.
0: Very few people are, in my and, experience, as they say.
1: Yes. A Rostock tra- <laughs> on the Baltic. <laughs> yes, right. Very, the very place. And um, he had, uh, after his uh, uh, Italian experience, he was employed by the King of Denmark, who was oh. the uncle of Charles I. And there are a great many pain- a great many. there are a few paintings by Klein. Uh, in Denmark, which are, I think, his best paintings, which uh, I might say are reproduced very well in this book. <laughs> and, and so we've so, got
0: a Baltic German yes. who is has an Italian sojourn, as so many people from Dürer onwards have, have done. Uh, right. And then he's gone back into the Baltic world. He's connected with the Danish court, which is at the time... I guess the most important Scandinavian court. It's allied to the Scottish court through the marriage you between don't, James.
1: Don't tell that to the Swedes. Yeah, I, right? I know, <laughs> but they're, they're
0: they're up and coming at the time. Still, you know. Uh, but mm. uh, so that this so this gets even more interesting. And and Klein, as you describe it, has a a really interesting career, um, like Rubens. He acts as a spy and sort of crypto diplomat. I mean, this is something that uh, that I, painter, I, painters I, are I, able to I do. I think
1: so. That that's yes, uh, because they can pass so readily. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I, my, it's my reconstruction that uh, Klein played the role you say, but it was very common for artists, uh, and he had good reason to be engaged in such things particularly at the time when he was making his transition from Denmark to England, because just then Charles was busily pursuing loans from his uncle. And there was a lot of cross traffic uh, between uh, <coughs> communication between them.
0: And what, right. what did Klein work in? I mean, because his, his artistic career is also very interesting. Well, if and you emblematic. Want,
1: If you want connections, yeah. he's your man. Uh, he began uh, as a painter of grotesques. That is, <laughs> these these things where you, you hang together all sorts of objects, bird cages and, uh, you know, apes and uh, chains and lamps and whatnot as borders to uh, paintings or wall decorations. Uh, and it was on that basis that he began his work in England, which was to design tapestries. And typically, uh, tapestries would because they were issued in series, and many of them w- examples were made, but they were uh, personalized for various uh, uh, buyers by their uh, sidebars, as it were, and mm-hmm. these were often grotesque. And and that's, mm-hmm. but okay. So he, that was his specialty. Then in Denmark, he painted anything, anything that didn't move. <laughs> Paintings, walls on which the paintings were held uh, were, were to be uh, and, uh, and an entrepreneur, and, and, in other words. And, and well, he did what the king asked him to do. You know? Yeah,
0: well, and, and, a wise man, a wise
1: man. Also, also, he painted portraits in uh, Denmark. So that was a trade that he had up his sleeve when the tapestry works for which he was the principal designer got into uh, evil times uh, at. Uh, civil war so he had uh, to make a living and so right. he returned to painting yeah. mm-hmm. uh, meanwhile and then eventually
0: he yeah. goes on to uh, book illustration correct yes. Or engravings yes.
1: yes there are hundreds literally hundreds of book engravings coffee table book engravings by him uh which tell stories he was well known as a man who could on one sheet of paper tell a dozen different stories yes so which
0: he's doing in this which he's doing in this portrait which he's doing in absolutely which
1: he's doing in this portrait and i uh no one has really put together uh all Klein's work he's been distributed out uh, as any academic subject you know the guys who do uh uh, book illustrations have a piece of him the guys who do tapestries have another piece of him uh, and so on I, however, being intrepid yeah, and, and, uh, and retired, uh, uh, took all of them <laughs> and tried to try to put him back again. Um,
0: I mean, speaking as uh, and maybe this is just a, a weird historian way of thinking about it, but he's much more interesting to me than let's put let me be bold and say he's much more b- interesting to me, say it, than Van Dyke or someone because in him you see all these the he is. Um, He's not at the top, he's not a top-rated artist that would concern the connoisseurs of uh, or perhaps the some of the art historians. But he's a he's an artist who, because he is of a certain skill level, has to surf with waves of fashion. Uh, but he's very good yes. at what he does, so he's always at the. I mean, he's good with the tapestries. He's good. Pretty good with the portraits, um, and then he's really good with book illustrations. And you can see the changes in taste and fashion throughout the course of his career, as you describe it. It's very interesting that way.
1: Yeah, that that that's true. he was compared from time to time to Van Dyke, and uh, yeah. some of his better work was attributed to Van Dyke, but which is
0: sign. It's a tribute uh, of a kind. <laughs> so let's get to that 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 uh, that question of. Uh, What is Galileo doing in a portrait of two English gentlemen painted by a Baltic German who's now Anglicized?
1: Yes, and don't leave out the uh, uh, Sir John Banks who no doubt uh, paid for the painting and who almost certainly, since he was a forceful man, uh, had the primary say of what went Mm -hmm. into that painting. All right, getting back to the question so here is another problem in connectivity, or rather challenge in connectivity. Mm-hmm. So why stop with Galileo when you're doing Italians? We we know that uh, England uh, English were fascinated by Italy, particularly by Venice, because they could get to Venice in this period and had much greater trouble traveling, unless they were Catholic, uh, in the further south.
0: Could you explain and why anyway, that is? Italy- but, this, Why? Well, this that
1: is, is yeah. Well, uh, of course, uh, well, we have um, Britain as, as a uh, Protestant power. In fact, trying to claim the leadership as the Protestant power in Europe, uh, the uh, Italy being uh, not only Catholic, but with the uh, exception of Venice, uh, pretty much under the. Uh, Influence of not the direct rule of the papacy. Well, mm-hmm. uh, and so, but,
0: but Venice has always been a place apart. Venice um, was a
1: place apart. Yes, it 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 had a tradition of uh, of uh, greater tolerance. Uh, it had a quasi republican government, uh, and uh, it was in a position to say no uh, to the popes when it felt like it. And sometimes it got into trouble doing that. And in the,
0: uh, and, it, and it has a, it has a very long-standing connection across the Alps. I mean, the passes are just north yes, of Venice. Absolutely. It's got the Fundaco Tedeschi. The, the, the German quarter has been there from time immemorial. Um, Nuremberg and Venice are some ways just a few miles apart. Um, Dürer, of course, goes to uh, Venice because there's that connection. Um, they've got a, the thriving printing trade in Europe, um, and all,
1: all true legendarily
0: all true. more copies of calvin's institutes are printed and sold in venice than probably anywhere else in europe you mentioned that i remember that from way back in renaissance no. reformation counter reformation seminar you know that's uh,
1: yes well don't don't leave don't leave out the uh, so-called honest courtesan yeah uh, the uh, the uh, which is the creature comforts of uh, uh, venice mm-hmm. also yeah. the fact that venice faced uh, east as well as north uh, and still had some uh, uh, possessions and uh, uh, market centers uh in the east yes uh, they were gradually losing that as you, but mm-hmm. uh, at the time they still had some They still had
0: was, i think they'll oh, still have uh, Aleppo. yeah and fortresses yeah. in Greece until the yeah. late 17th century I uh-huh.
1: know so um, uh, although yes and anyway in any case uh they were Wealthy from their trade, they were tolerant or quasi-tolerant by nature because, uh, or by necessity, because they had to deal with all these different sorts of people. Uh, Protestants, although they were not welcome with over ar- with, with open arms, were welcome enough. They attended the university, uh, as did, for example, our doctor,
0: Mr. Mm-hmm. Uh, Williams. And this is the Venetian University in on in Pad- the ter- Terraferma in Padua. In Padua where one of its most distinguished ornaments is Galileo Galilei. Right.
1: Who uh, left the place in uh, 1610 in order to become a courtier, (laughs) which is a bad move, incidentally. Uh, It was not a particularly good one for him. Uh, But, uh, okay, so we have Italian connections, Mm -hmm. uh, an interest in uh, the Venetian form of government, and I should say, uh, the terror on the part of the Stuart kings that they would be reduced to the status of a doge—that is, a prince who was really elected and uh, was only the first among equals—and
0: uh, yeah, that, and that, and is basically a prisoner of his oligarchy of the yes, uh, aristocracy.
1: That's, that's what came to pass. Uh, <laughs> exactly. it, it, it was it, prophetic, uh, mm. right? Okay, yeah. so we have we have the Italian connection, but I descend particularly on two guys who were buddies of Galileo's. Uh, One is named uh, Paolo Sarpi, who was a friar, but nonetheless, that is, he was a uh, great enemy of the popes and helped the Venetian government in its uh, uh, opposition to the papacy. Uh, And uh, he was also uh, very good at the sorts of things that Galileo was good at. Uh, mathematics and physics and so on, reputed to be the smartest man in Europe. But how in the world you'd ever be able to <laughs> judge that, I don't know.
0: He was the also other, a historian.
1: Yeah, uh, oh, absolutely. And that's the uh, Im- most important feature of all. He was a historian uh, who uh, told it as he saw it. And as he saw it, the popes were nothing but temporal princes whose last interest was religion. Uh, and he uh, wrote a history of the Council of Trent, uh, which was the uh, major Roman reply to the Protestant uh, Reformation, uh, which was scathing and uh, which was a, made an excellent piece of propaganda for the Protestant uh, Protestants, particularly the uh, English, who mm-hmm. cultivated this book. Mm -hmm. And I have to introduce you before I say another word about the book to the third of these, uh, this triumvirate, whose name was uh, uh, De Dondis, Mark Antonio De Dondis, who was an archbishop. Uh, And he, too, was always fighting with the uh, papacy. Uh, And uh, he went so far as to emigrate to England Mm-hmm. Where in the capacity of the Dean of Windsor, he was able to edit Sarpi's poisonous history of the Council of Trent, which had been smuggled out in small bits from Italy.
0: He was Dean of Windsor. Yes. Which is a, a equivalent to sort of chaplain at the most important palace of the king. Hmm. Uh, and he was still a Catholic archbishop at yes. this time? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's uh, right. right. This is
1: a connection you would find difficult to make. Uh, Yeah, it's a connection. I I I, I
0: just admit I never knew. Of that, I was he, he I was blown, boast stunned boast by
1: that. His uh, archbishopness. I mean, I don't think that this was. This is not a recognized <laughs> title, uh, a Catholic archbishop. In uh, uh, he
0: made the uh, best distinction I've ever read of the Anglo-Calvinisti and I think the Purro-Calvinisti, which are the Puritans. Uh, which okay, that's like the best definition I've ever heard. In some ways, you know, it's that, <laughs> that sort of that. Like well, anyway, something.
1: anyway, he went back to uh, to Italy and uh, had a great. Uh, well, eventually was thrown into prison. So he ended his career ignominiously. Uh, yeah. But it's quite interesting. When he went back to Italy, he was welcomed as a returning hero because they mm. thought he had brought back news of great conversions that uh, were mm-hmm. about to occur in
0: well, Italy. It was uh, certainly an indication when the king hires a Catholic archbishop as dean of Windsor that something mm, must be mm. about to happen. Oh, he came.
1: Know? He came at the invitation of King James, the first, who yeah. was the father, of course, of Charles the Yeah. Uh,
0: so well, we've got these connections, and now let's. Um, so where's the? What's the connection then? So I guess this is where the you know, listeners you lost- are probably wondering where, where, why would Sir John Banks or any of these people want, what would Galileo mean as an image in this portrait? What's -hmm. the the Mm -hmm. message being given?
1: Yes. Well, uh, in order to uh, explain that, you have to arrive at certain technical uh, improvements on the usual way of telling uh, uh, history. Uh, By the time I got through with my connections, I'm not dodging your question. By the no, time no. I no, I'm not. By the time I got through uh, with uh, these and many other connections as well, because let me s- just yep. mention the, uh, yeah. the uh, uh, problem of constituting an audience for this image. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, A- and this uh, led me to ransack as far as I could uh, all. Kinds of uh, literature in which uh, an interest in Galileo or the uh, Venetians or whatever, uh, of Sarpi uh, or De uh, Dominis, were mentioned. And this took me through plays, uh, masks, uh, yeah. whatever you want, all yeah. kinds of literature, sermons, uh, terrible stories. Let's, let's talk about court yeah.
0: masks briefly because you spend some yeah. time. Uh, I, 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 do. I, and so let's talk about. I, I love this part uh, the court masks and the way a court masks um, fit in with astronomy and religion mm. and mm. performance and courtly culture. Uh, you know, those of us uh, who know that Ben Jonson existed, um, <laughs> but haven't really, have never read anything by him, we might know that, you know, son of a bricklayer uh, thought Shakespeare didn't have much Latin or Greek. Uh, and did a lot of court masks, and I know court masks are elaborate costume plays. Uh, mm. Pocahontas went to one, uh, mm. and uh, I'm an American historian, so that's what I that's what I know, and that's where it ends. But how do court masks fit into this?
1: They, they were they were uh, quite important because uh, they were uh, they they occurred usually around uh, Christmas time, Christmas and New Year, and uh, it was very important if you were intended to be important uh, around the court to be invited. So uh, and a, uh, an invitation was a political matter, and an even stronger political matter was not receiving an invitation <laughs> to these things. Uh, and they were originally uh, dances, mainly, uh, in which uh, the maskers who were courtiers Uh, even including the king and queen often, uh, did not speak. But gradually things changed a little bit, and uh, they did make some noises themselves. But generally, they were very elaborate dances with with large uh, and imposing stage settings. You know, uh, the, the new Italian, another Italian connection, uh, stage machinery in which uh, musicians descend from the sky and, uh, you know, the caverns open up to disgorge witches and so forth. They were... Uh, really smoke and mirrors uh, because mm. there was a lot of candles <laughs> and smoke. Mm. Uh, there were mirrors to reflect the lights and so on and so on. Quite heady, uh, uh, mm. sensual experiences. Uh, and the main point here uh, is that the plots of many of them do involve, uh, astronomical, astrological, uh, images, star Lord that we no longer possess or most people no longer possess. Uh, and, uh, so that was one place where I looked. You say the same thing in plays. You often mm-hmm. see some are quite astrologically uh, oriented. Many of them require quite advanced concepts of both astronomy and astrology for full comprehension. And obviously, playwrights like Ben Jonson uh, mm-hmm. expected that their audiences would uh, understand these. Uh, and these often, are things often that- erudite allusions.
0: And because you understand the history of astronomy and you could do some some math and so these are things that like pa- pass by me all the time. I, I, I know that they're there, but I don't under ever understand their their full significance. the significance right. that you're saying that Johnson assumes viewers understand.
1: Yes, and uh, one reason, uh, one level that he can assume is the almanac, almanac level. Uh, almanacs were very widely read. In, uh, oh yeah, this I period. mean all and, the way and,
0: into the nineteenth century, of course. I mean, beyond, right? I mean,
1: but- the numbers, the numbers of almanacs printed in England are staggering. They're in Stabbing. the millions. They're in the yes. millions, and uh, so at that level uh where you know you're told of course the weather but you're also told about eclipses and occultations and uh, this and that which uh, uh, don't make much sense to people today but at the time were well known mm-hmm. the astrological terminology uh, this debased astrology we have in our newspapers enough to make you weep uh, the uh, you know astrology they, has come they, down they, a long way they wouldn't understand a word of this uh, stuff and during the Civil War, there, there were, you know, each side had its astrologers who would uh, who would predict victory, of course, uh, using the most up-to-date and
0: reliable methods. Yeah, I mean, so t- today's astrology in the newspapers is only concerned with where you are in the sun, which is, yeah. I mean, the merest plotting village astronomer astrologer could do better. In 17th century England, I mean, could you, yes, you actually also, cast you actually cast a horoscope in the course of making connections. Could you explain that yeah. and why? Well,
1: because uh, I mentioned that uh, young John Banks uh, has left us very little more uh, about himself than a couple of Latin poems that he did his exercises in college, and fortunately for me, hit the date and place of his birth. Well, that's all you need, right, to uh, cast a horoscope. So I did it using the uh, most approved methods of the 17th century, only to discover that he was indeed a son of Saturn. Now, what does that
0: mean? Uh, yeah, by the way, what could you briefly describe the approved methods of the 17th century? Since I have to, I have to uh, blush, blushingly confess that I don't know what those are.
1: Well, uh, the first thing you do is to find out where in the heavens the various uh, uh, planets are. Uh, and uh, that means what constellations they're sitting in at the time. And then you divide up the zodiac in which they're sitting and you put it into the houses, each of which represents a certain uh, Aspect of life,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and there are various ways of chopping the zodiac up and putting it into these twelve houses. Uh, it's not that you take one piece of the zodiac, piece one, and stick it in uh, house one, and so on. But anyway, I won't bother you with the technicalities. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there, there were, there are many, many rival systems, but the one I use is just as good as any other.
0: <laughs> <laughs> did you, did you know these before? You've, you've already known these from your yeah, previous yeah, one. yeah
1: right? I've, I. Oh, I, I used to teach astrology in my course on astronomy, because early modern astronomy. Because after all, that was half yeah. the, that was what the guys guys did. Yeah. Okay. So then, after you've got that all pieced together, you, the things that are most important are what are the planets around the rising. Uh, sign what what are just coming up above the horizon which ones are in the mid heaven that is due south and and, uh, which ones are setting and what their aspects are to one another etc etc and when you do put in all that stuff you see that Saturn was the Lord of uh, our friends horoscope the sons of Saturn are uh, mathematicians Also, butchers and criminals, but we leave that out of. uh,
0: (laughs) And that's and we get the word. Right.
1: So you say, okay, uh, was he, did he know his horoscope? Almost certainly. Was he acting so that it would prove itself? Perhaps. Uh, Anyway, so,
0: but I should just say that this is where we get the word Saturnine. I mean, this is, this is, this is, that was literally the term, a common term comes from this, the emotional disposition.
1: Saturnine, jovial, mercurial. Yeah,
0: so on. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know where, where we're where, where, where where we, are we, yeah. what's what's the next connection? But uh, we've got uh, we've got the we've got the court mass, We've got the astrology. We've got the astronomy. Um, we've got we and find were, it
1: in pol- in in political speech, uh, mm-hmm. which I found most interesting uh, as well, and. Uh, uh, of course, in disputations at Oxford and Cambridge, and this and that. Anyway, there's plenty of it around. Any educated person, and many not so educated, would have come across uh, these terms and would have some spattering of the notion of uh, cosmology. They would have known about Galileo because of the telescope. This telescope itself was a metaphor, often mm-hmm. used metaphor for the penetrating, for the uh, for discovery, for whatever. Mm-hmm. All right. So you keep you keep asking me what this has got to do with Galloway? No, no, before, <laughs> before we get to that, I think we're going
0: to get to that final chapter. Uh, yes, uh, yes. Before, before I set that we should probably pause for a station identification. This is Historically Thinking. I'm Al Zambone, and I'm talking with John Heilbronn about his book. The Ghost of Galileo in a Forgotten Painting from the English Civil War. And just to, to note, if you're listening to this on the web, uh, Historically Thinking is now available on more podcasting venues than I could possibly imagine. I just want to, I don't want to brag or anything, but we're on the two major podcasting venues in the Indian subcontinent. I mean, you can't say fairer than that. Uh, so if you uh, can't find us on your preferred podcasting uh, app, then uh, I don't think you're looking hard enough. So, um, Having said that, let's move on to the conclusion, uh, which is, um, you know, I have to say one of the more audacious things that I've read from a historian since I like read uh, (laughs) Simon Schama's Dead Uncertainties standing up in a bookstore during um, grad school. Um, It's Mm. uh, it's kind of crazy and it's so awesome. Mm. So could you describe what you did and Mm. and how you came about it uh, before I ask you, how dare you? (laughs)
1: Well, uh, I had all this information, all these connections, and no clear answer to the question uh, why that Galileo reference sat in that painting. Uh, So I asked myself, what would Galileo do under the circumstances? Well, he would write a dialogue. Uh, The dialogue, of course, is the book in question. Uh, There are three guys in his dialogue. There are three guys in my painting, the two sitters and the painter. Why not bring them together 10 years after the painting was made and have them discuss it? What it meant to them then, what it meant to them now. Uh, Who put the props in the painting? What they meant to the person who put the props in the painting? Uh, And so on and so on. And so I explicitly state that this is made up, but also claim... And I hope this is true, that I never let the participants in this dialogue get out of the characters that I developed for them in the strictly or more strictly historical parts of the book. Mm -hmm. So in effect, you have these three people, first of all, explaining to you all the different uh, interpretations that might be made or that they have come across or that seem plausible to them of this image, Uh, and uh, you also have the benefit of their advice, of Mm -hmm. their evaluation of what you have done. Now, I must tell you that when I did this, it was absolutely effortless. I was really the stenographer. I was taking dictation from these guys, and they invented explanations that I had not thought of. (laughs)
0: It sounds a little freaky.
1: Well, it was a little freaky, but I was so full of them by that time and uh, so uh, full of explanations of this uh, painting that I wanted to hear from them. And it, particularly the painter, Klein, surprised me greatly by his insights into the meaning <laughs> of, this, of this painting, and I suspect that's because he painted it. I didn't paint it, so I learned something from it. And I will even go further uh, and say that it is not a bad technique, even if you don't use it explicitly, uh-huh. to review some of your historical uh, constructions. How would it- the protagonist view what you have said about him or her?
0: Yeah, I have to say that um, as I, I say that, I'm mean, I'm kind of stunned and shocked to see it being done. And it's like if it was being done by a 28 year old in their first book, we would like, Shrug. yeah, no, te- but,
1: no you know, tenure, no tenure there.
0: <laughs> no, but you, it's like John Haldron's doing it. But, but I'm still like a scandalized and envious. It, that was the feeling as I as I as I as I, as I read it. Um, it's like, but and and this is you kept from being a novelist. Well, because you tried to stick to some rules of evidence, but on the other hand, mm-hmm. you did write it. You did write it yeah. very quickly. That part. Yeah, that part. How long did it take the to write that from part? Dicta- from yeah.
1: Oh the uh, well, the first time it didn't take any. It didn't take any time at all. But then I had to go over it and over <laughs> it and over it. So uh, I, I oh, would I say see. that the spontaneous. The spontaneous part was uh, quite quick. I probably wrote it in a week or something yeah. like that. Yeah,
0: but and it's, but, uh, it's, it's but not short I, either.
1: No, no yeah. it, and in fact, it was longer. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> I, I was able able to get rid of some stuff.
0: So uh, you, you had to go through it and make sure that you're sticking to what you knew.
1: What you- I knew and what they knew. What mm-hmm. We're yeah, likely right. to know. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and one of the things that they, they are particularly interested in is uh, what Sir John, what was on Sir John's mind. And mm-hmm. uh, that, that's one of the reasons that I resorted to this uh, device, because I mm-hmm. couldn't interview Sir John. I should say that of Sir John, we have more paper than we need, because as an attorney, of course, I shouldn't say paper. We have all kinds of things. we got paper, and we have animal hides, and we have this and that, all in an archive in Dorset, which has uh, hundreds of items uh, about him and thousands of items about his family.
0: But which are not necessarily revealing of his... um...
1: Some are. For example, uh, there is a notebook in which he kept uh, records of sermons he had heard. Wow. So I was, a, I was able to get a notion of where he stood religiously. And, of course, in uh, 17th century England, uh, where you stand religiously is of utmost importance. Well, it,
0: it's uh, well, it, the first amazing thing is that such a thing exists at all. I mean, not yeah. everyone's taking notes on their sermons. That's uh, No,
1: but ma- many more did than you might think. Many yeah, more it, have survived than you yeah, might think. Yeah. Uh, so uh, 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 from these archives, I was able to uh, piece together his uh, – from his library, his interests. Uh, but then I had to let his son tell me what the real story was behind yeah. the. Uh, 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 it, it, and one of the real stories is Venice, uh-huh. that uh, Galileo, like the others I mentioned, stand for a form of government which Sir John Banks was beginning to think was the only way out for England. That there should be some sort of constitutional monarchy. Uh Uh, And uh, that's one of the possible significances of Galileo to him. Then, of course, there is young John, who was a Saturnine mathematician, apparently, Uh appears in this uh, uh, keepsake uh, with the proper appurtenances of an astronomer. And so it's a celebration to some extent of Galileo and Galileo's work as an astronomer. And there are many other things as well.
0: Yeah. Um, So in a way, because of the wide range of connections that you had made in the course of thinking through this, Mm. processing through this, that was one of the reasons why this dialogue was so easy to write. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm curious, uh, you... um, You explicitly reference these um, connections. You say in the very first pages that there's no end to the potentially relevant, Um, which Mm -hmm. I thought a lot about during the first two years of writing my dissertation and was convinced that would probably was a a doorway to madness. Um, This is where you find really erudite um, graduate students of like 60 wandering around Hyde Park talking to themselves. Um, how do we stop making mm-hmm. connections? Because once you start making connections like this, I mean, you, it's hard to stop. You end up being like... Um, well, that, it's true. Who, that, poor, that poor fellow who wanted to write the history of everything.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, my rule is, when uh, I don't learn anything really new, that is, when I keep getting back, only corroborating... Uh, Instances or ones that uh, anti corroborating ones, which I've already disposed of in some way or another, uh, then I begin to think the story is coming to an end. Could uh, you explain a, what
0: you what do you mean by that? Uh, when well, you-
1: I mean when 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 I'm not getting enough back for my time. Let me. Do you know Lotka's law? One of no. the great discoveries no. of the human mind. Uh, essentially, for our purposes, it says that. The uh, diminishing returns in an ongoing research go down as the square of the time. So, if in the first portion of time, say a year, uh, you have a great rich harvest of information and so on, it'll take you four years to get another harvest, even approximating that, and nine years to get a third tranche.
0: That's a real, I wish someone had told me about that. Uh, that's uh, no, a really important. Your 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 just your advisees are blessed to be able to know that. That's a very to, important to, insight. To know
1: Lotka's Law, yes. Yeah. So uh, if if you can work it out in four years, it would be sixteen. I mean, the fourth time would be sixteen. You add those all up. So if you do it four times, you got thirty years invested in the project, which is getting close to your uh, your fellow in, uh, yeah, wherever that was, High, around Park. High
0: Park. Yeah. yeah. Uh,
1: so you don't have 30 years to invest in the project and you have to have some rule, a shut off rule. And mine is uh, when after casting my neck quite widely, I don't seem to be getting back any big fish anymore without a terrible amount of trouble. And so, look, you let a fish or two get away. That's what the next generation of graduate students has created to catch. Right?
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um so at, at some point, you start making those connections, and that's Locke's law, that's, that's, and that's, a, in your case, experience. Um, um, what's required to make connections like this other than simply knowledge? I mean, you have been over, as I said in the intro, you've written Neil's little biography of Niels Bohr. You've written longer stuff about Niels Bohr's notebooks, but you've also done medieval solar astronomy and why cathedrals and churches are set up the way they are. I mean, you all when you came to this portrait, you knew a hell of a lot. Um, yeah. I'm teaching it. I'm trying well, to explain making connections between, I don't know, uh, two engravings of Pocahontas, say, or the first portrait of Pocah, the first hmm. engraving of Pocahontas, and a 19th century portrait of Pocahontas, and sometimes it's very difficult for a 19 year old. Even seeing what's in front of them to make the connection to see, the, say, racial differences or the difference in depiction between, say, a very mm. native Native American, natural American, versus a conception of an Elizabethan uh, a Stuart princess, which is what the first engravings show her as, um, very difficult for a nineteen-year-old. Yeah. What beyond knowledge? How do we go about making connections?
1: Yes. Well, there's that famous slogan from uh, Louis Pasteur, you know, uh, uh, chance favors the prepared mind. So you have to prepare your mind. And the way you do that is read, read, read and look, 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 there's no way out of it. Uh, You and you should not concentrate your looking and reading on just the sort of thing, the narrow topic that you plan to write about. This is obvious, uh, but uh, it should be said over and over again that the way the uh, universities have divided up knowledge is not the way in which people in the past divided up knowledge. And I think we touched upon earlier in our discussion just how important that is for early modern times. Uh, So, yes, go to see... The muse, Go to hear the music of the period. Go to view the houses and the monuments of the period. Read literature in general. Don't just read the the historical stuff that you're uh, that you have to read, of course, in your particular narrow topic. But read widely. Read widely, and read good books. <laughs> and, 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 and see, if you wanna, listen, and see, listen, read. And read stuff that has nothing to do with your field, nothing even to do with the time period. Uh, read a good author. That's the way mm-hmm. – read a
0: good novelist. That's the way people uh, – you might learn to put things together. This uh, is um, – uh, when I was at Augustana College, uh, we had you know, a brochure for prospective undergraduates. We said, uh, we intend to make the inside of your head an interesting place. Um, for somebody else to visit, <laughs> and uh, yeah. or for yourself to visit. Because sometimes we need mm. to visit the inside yeah. of our head. Uh, so this is not about. Um, this is not just about, of course, this very narrow thing of making connections or connecting. Um, like a lot of these things, um, the best humanistic disciplines are about becoming an interesting person, maybe even a good person.
1: Mm. Ah, yes. Now you've really raised the ante here. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. But, uh, so what, 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 yeah, one of the uh, connections that I have been flirting with for years, and if I live to be 110 and uh, follow Lotka's law, I might be able to do something with, uh, which is the conviction that uh, there is an important uh, organic tie between experimental science on the one hand and uh, modern history in the sense of history based on authentic documents on the other. Uh, I think they're Mm coeval and I think they respond to the same uh, cultural uh, uh, impulses. And uh, that really involves a lot of
0: connections. (laughs) 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 Well, with that and with the uh, hope for some future connections to be made and work to come from it. I'd like to thank uh, Professor John Heilbronn, author of The Ghost of Galileo and Forgotten Painting from the English Civil War, which is out from Oxford University Press, and uh, which you should buy and read because it's good and fun and interesting. Uh, Professor Heilbronn, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. I thank you for the opportunity